It vibrates with creativity and hums with brilliant performances. That's Richard Roper of Ebert and Roper talking about American Splendor. That's right, our old movie this week here on Cinephiles. I continue my love affair with the great Paul Giamatti. Last week, we talked about Cinderella Man. This week, American Splendor. As far as new movies are concerned, Fargo Season 5. All 10 episodes I've seen, they're in the books. Fantastic show on FX. And our wild card, that's right, Charles Stone the Third, Terrific director. And he's got a new film called The Underdogs. Three G's for our man Snoop Dogg. It's available on Amazon Prime this Friday. He's got great stories about working with Bernie Mac on Mr. 3000, paid him full, Cameron, and of course, this new film. Uh, and of course, the commercials back there. Well, yeah. Charleston the third came up, Corey came up with those commercials, which were very, very famous. But of course, the real new here is the Oscar nominations, which were released an hour ago, 9.35. Chris Cody and I are taping this right now, 8.30 a.m. They were announced on Good Morning America. And a guy who has the familiarity with Oscar nominations being announced is Chris Cody. Oh. 8.30 a.m. Eastern is when I was watching on Good Morning America, making notes. But you were a part of a watch party at a much earlier time in Los Angeles with a much bigger name. A few years ago during Super Bowl week, Adam McKay, friends with Dan, they were up for what's the movie for Refresh My Drink a couple years ago? What was the movie? It was, oh, was the, the inf- yeah, it was the uh, movie that wasn't great. It was, it was the, like uh, the world environmental movie. movie. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so that movie was up I'll for nominations. That movie was up for nominations. We went to Adam McKay's house and ha- they were having don't like look a- up was the movie. The way you would have a Super Bowl watch party, they were having at like 5 a.m. local time, just people over a breakfast spread waiting to hear if they were nominated. It was cool to see from that perspective, because like for me, like give me to the Oscars like this part. This day hasn't never really been. Ex- but ever since that day, I have a respect for how big yeah. today is. Like, is this your Christmas morning or is Oscar Christmas morning? I was about to say Oscars be Christmas, but this would be Christmas Eve, right? This is the okay. precursor to the big event. And yeah. um, it is pretty exciting when they announce it. I got to be honest, man. Like, I- I'm one of those guys who's obviously geeking out about it, as is, I'm sure, David Sampson. He was live doing nothing personal, but he's going to do his recap here shortly. But yeah, because you think things are going to go a certain way, but you never know. I mean, like every year, like, oh, he's going to get nominated, and then he doesn't, or she's got to be a sense, and then she doesn't. So you're like, let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's get the nomination first. And as a guy, as I've told, I just I just want to win an Emmy Award one day. I just would like to get nominated. Like it would be an honor to be nominated for Best Studio Host Emmy Awards one day. So I I get really excited about the nominations. So here's what we're gonna do: top ten things that I'm thrilled about, and top five things that are snubbed. So that's the kind of way that I'm gonna focus on this and attack this. I'm thrilled to see Bass, Past Lives was nominated for Best Picture. That's a great sign for that movie. Independent film came out in the summer. Normally those are two knocks against the movie getting nominated. Independent movie, a summer movie, but I thought it was a beautiful story. Greta Lee, fantastic. She was not nominated. But the film was nominated for Best Picture. I'm thrilled to see that. Past Lives was number six on my top 10 movies of the year. Great to see that. Number nine. So Barbie people are talking and they're going to be talking a lot about the fact. And we'll get to the stubs in just a second. Greta Gerwig was not nominated for Best Director. Mm-hmm. Margot Robbie was not nominated Best Actress. But I'm thrilled about fellow Canadian. Ryan Gosling comes through with Best Supporting Actor. He's a terrific actor and a great guy. And honestly, I think that's a pretty risky part. I mean, he's done a lot of challenging roles but to play ken like you gotta get an eight pack of bleach blonde hair like that is but, a, a difficult role i think in many ways and i thought he knocked it out of the park so good for ryan gossing and what I, is a loaded category i felt like everything about like the writing the set design i felt like there were a lot of things about barbie that were nomination worthy yeah. but like the performances really like ken I don't know. That was a that's weird the one you're out on. You're not as thrilled about. Yeah. I'm just I just felt like I, I I didn't leave there being like, man, those performances like I was like original movie. Cool yes. to look at. Like I didn't I didn't yeah, get I didn't, design. I didn't walk away there being like, man, Gosling was amazing. Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I, I'm here down that I, I don't now that I think about it. Yeah, I was probably more looking at the dollhouses and the production design rather than going. But I did think it was a fearless performance. But I, you're right. I didn't walk out there and going. That's an Oscar nomination worthy performance of Ryan Gosling. You're 100 percent right on that. But I'm still thrilled. Fellow Canadian. He yep. comes through. Number eight. Thelma Schoonmaker, amazing, living legend. She's edited every single Martin Scorsese movie since Raging Bull in 1980. She's nominated for Best Editing, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yay, Thelma. Of course, previous winner, she's the best. Speaking of Killers of the Flower Moon, the late Robbie Robertson, integral member of the band, passed away this summer. Um, A member of the Native community, not Osage. It was Mohawk from Canada. Lived on a reservation growing up. Marty's boy. They've worked together since the last waltz. He gets nominated Best Original Score and Killers of the Flower Moon. A surprise gets nominated for Best Original Song. One of those songs in the movie. 
awesome. Only thing that does hurt me is he. I think they took the nomination away from Peaches, our boy Jack Black, who had a decent chance of being nominated for Super Mario Brothers. But the Killers of the Flower Moon song, amazing. That gets nominated. Number six on the top 10 things I'm thrilled about with the Oscar nominations. One of my favorite actors, the great Mark Ruffalo gets nominated for Poor Things. Absolutely hysterical in the movie. Poor Things was number five on my best pictures of the year. And I just think Ruffalo has been a terrific actor for a long time. I was really upset when he lost for Spotlight. I really wanted him to win there. I don't think he wins in this performance, but playing a devilish cad, I thought he was absolutely hysterical. As my friend Eric Nays said, I think his girlfriend said, that's the kind of what you wouldn't used to seeing Mark Ruffalo in. And I thought his performance was great. It does take away from my boy, Willem Dafoe. We'll talk about that in a second. Meantime, number five, things I'm thrilled about. Sterling K. Brown, nominated for Best Supporting Actor for American Fiction. I met him a few years ago, Celebrity Softball, which he used to be the voice of. It was right after The People versus O.J. Simpson came out. He played Christopher Darden. By the way, guy in great shape, hit the ball a mile, and he was awesome. It was very nice to meet my wife. I was like, hey, man, I think you're going to be a great actor. And uh, all the props to you, you were awesome in this show. He's like, they could not have been more gracious just to see him get his first Academy Award nomination. You know, it's funny. When you watch these movies, it's tough to predict. Like Chris said, you don't walk at a Barbie and say, that's going to get nominated. When I saw American Fiction, I watched it on my laptop. I got sent the screener because of John Ortiz interview. I said, I go, that's an Oscar-worthy performance. And he wasn't getting nominated for anything. He didn't get nominated from the Golden Globes. And I go, dude, I walked, I, I closed the laptop. I didn't walk out of the movie. When I closed my laptop, I said, Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K. Brown should both get nominated. So I was so happy Sterling K. Brown did get recognized by the SAGs, Screen Actors Guild Awards, and by the Academy today, Best Supporting Actor. Speaking of American Fiction, great showing for what was my number four best picture of the movie. I'm thrilled for American Fiction, especially its lead actor, the incredible Jeffrey Wright. He gets his first Best Actor nomination. Happy to see him recognized. Colin Domingo also for People of Color, two black actors nominated for Best Actor. That's good to see. I wasn't as bullish on Rustin as a movie, but if you remember, I did love Colin Domingo's performance. Number three. Bob De Niro's back, 80 years old, his first Oscar nomination in a dozen years, playing an absolutely villainous character. Call me King. Call me uncle like he used to. He's unbelievable. I've now seen Killers of the Flower Moon four times. Okay. I saw it twice in theaters, as you all know. I saw it once New Year's Eve when Cody was getting after it. I had a screener in my laptop. It said this will expire at midnight. So, I go, okay, I got to get in one more showing. And then last week, I forced my wife to watch because she will not watch on the DVD player. She only likes to watch streaming upstairs TV. I go, fine, streaming. We're putting it on right now. Kids are at school, three and a half hours. Let's go. I missed 10 minutes when I had to go get one of the kids from school. But of course, I've seen the movie three times. Point is, Killers of the Flower Moon four times. And I said to her, Cody, I said, what'd you think? She goes, really good. She goes, I thought the first half is better than the second half. It's a little long. She goes, but I thought De Niro was incredible. I go, exactly. She goes, he, she goes I thought he was unbelievable. Like, he's I, a great villain. I give you as much shit as anyone about your obsession with this group of guys. But that is a warranted, <laughs> at this age even, a warranted nice. nomination for De Niro. He was great. I love it. I love the backup. His first nomination, by the way, since Silver Linings Playbook, which is a movie you and I both like a lot as well. Number two, what I'm thrilled about. And this is kind of gets back to our conversation. You go, hey, I get the nomination first. And let the record reflect, Killian Murphy is still the favorite to win Best Actor. But Ben Lyons was the first guy who whispered in my ear, your guy's going to win. And I go, no, no, go, let's get a nomination first. And so number two thing that I'm thrilled about, Paul Giamatti just got his first nomination for Best Actor ever. He is nominated for The Holdovers. That's a great sign for him and for the movie, which is up for Best Picture. But perhaps now we see a pathway. Giamatti's nominated. He's got a 20% chance, five nominees. Maybe he can make a little push. Gold Derby, which I used to work for, they do the Oscar odds. As of uh, two weeks ago, number one favorite is Killian Murphy for actor. Number two is Bradley Cooper. Number three is Giamatti. After Giamatti won the Critics' Choice Award, he's now jumped up past Bradley Cooper. So he's now he's number two. So we now officially have a two-horse race. Let's see. And the number one thing I'm thrilled about, again, Martin Scorsese nominated for Best Director. I mean, the man's 80 years of age, up for Best Director. According to everyone, he's not going to win. Nolan is going to win for Oppenheimer. You could bet your mortgage on this. Christopher Nolan's going to win Best Director. But running number two right now, is Marty. If for some reason Nolan didn't win, Scorsese would win his second Best Director Oscar. Uh, everyone knows about, as Chris said, my love affair for these guys, but this was a great nugget from my agent who just texted me. With his nomination for Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese has surpassed Steven Spielberg to become the most nominated living film director at the Oscars. Like That's amazing. My guy gets nominated again, and uh, it's just awesome to see Marty get nominated again. I, again, for a guy this age, to be cranking out these kind of films over the last 10 years. Wolf of Wall Street, which is one of the most popular films. He was nominated Best Director, Best Picture as well. Silence, which I loved, which was snubbed. The Irishman, Best Director, Best Picture. And now Kills the Flower Moon, Best Picture, Best Director. It gives all of us hope. Now the stuff people really care about, the snubs. What are you mad about? 
Number six, Willem Dafoe, one of my favorite actors, former guest here on Cinephile. He's never won an Academy Award. He's 65 years of age. He was nominated for Platoon. He was nominated for The Florida Project, among others. Would have loved to see him nominated in Poor Things. Chris hasn't seen the movie, but even when he saw his picture, you were blown away at how ugly and disfigured he looked. For that makeup job, Willem Dafoe, Classic. I would have liked to have seen a nomination. Yeah. Number five, this one will offend Samson more than me. Um, again, my favorite actors of all time is You Never Tire of Hearing, Pacino, De Niro, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Giamatti, Ethan Hawke, Denzel, but Michael J. Fox. And Michael J. Fox, I thought for sure was going to an Oscar for documentary. The movie is called Still, and uh, he's been everywhere promoting it in New York City. I meant to go to a screening, but I was busy with other things. But the director, Davis Guggenheim, is a previous Oscar winner for An Inc Inconvenient Truth, the Al Gore movie. Not even nominated for Best Documentary. That is shocking when I saw the nominees. I'm going to have to watch some documentaries here. 20 Days in Mariupol, which is about Ukraine, the invasion. I believe that might be the favorite to win. I haven't checked the odds yet. But as the nominations came out, I go, oh, my God, Michael J. Fox not nominated. I thought he might be the favorite to win. Number four. Now we get to Barbie. So I don't really care that Greta Gerwig didn't get nominated for Best Director. Samson's losing his mind. Everyone's offended right now. I, again, I wasn't as crazy about Barbie as other people. I think Chris and I align on this. But I am shocked. One of the biggest appeals of Barbie was what? Margot Robbie. The fact that Margot Robbie did not get nominated for Best Actress, to me, that's a pretty big slight. I mean, if you're going to nominate it for Best Picture and you're going to nominate Gosling and you're going to nominate America Ferreira for Supporting Actress, again, to your point, I didn't walk out going, she should get an Oscar nomination. She had a great monologue, that speech about women being aggrieved and you know unappreciated. That's a great speech. But Margot Robbie, not, not she was also a producer in the film. Like I'm a little surprised Margot Robbie did not get nominated. Number three biggest snub. This one offends me. Alexander Payne, the guy directs the holdovers. So you direct Giamatti towards the Best Actor nomination. You direct Divine Joy Randolph towards the Best Supporting Actress nomination. You direct the film towards the Best Picture, but you don't get nominated for director. So apparently the film directed itself. Ridiculous. Alexander Payne should have been nominated for director. I appreciate, as a guy who likes his foreign films, what they did. They actually really included more foreign films, and that's why Payne got hurt. Um, the documentary, excuse me, the director nominees. So no one's going to win for Oppenheimer. Marty's second, Killers of Fire Moon. Yorgo Lanthimos, the great Greek director's poor things. The other two are pretty surprising. Justin Trier for Anatomy of a Fall, which was number 10 on my top 10. I think it's a great film. And Jonathan Glazer, that's the Holocaust movie, the zone of interest. So that's two foreign films nominated for Best Director. That took away the nominees from Greta Gerwig for Barbie and Payne for the Holdovers. I don't agree with that decision. Payne should have been in it. Number two. No, Leo. We knew he was in trouble once he was not nominated for the SAGs. That's a Screen Actors Guild Award. The biggest branch of the Academy is the actors. Again, this is why Ben is saying Giamatti's going to win. He said Paul Giamatti's worked for 30 years in movies. Everyone loves him. Killian Murphy is a weird guy who only does Christopher Nolan movies. So if this is just a popularity contest, when you see your ballot, you go, Oppenheimer, yeah, that's going to get picture, director. Oh, yeah, no, I love Paul Giamatti. That guy's awesome. Big fat liar. He's in. So that's why his thought process. So then you say to yourself, well, then how did Leo not get nominated? I'm not saying he's not popular with fellow actors, but I'll say this. He doesn't play the game. Leo's not on Kimmel. He's not up promoting the movie. What he has done, which has been very shrewd, he's been really pushing Lily Gladstone. Every interview he's done is with Lily Gladstone, and he cannot keep saying enough, she should win an Oscar. Like it has, He's not saying that, but it's his way of saying, Lily Lily's incredible. She carried this scene. I learned so much about the Osage community. I learned about Native American rights. I learned from Lily. So he's basically saying, hey, I won the Oscar for The Revenant. I want to see you recognize her. So get her an Oscar, get Bob an Oscar, get Marty one, like whatever, but like, I'm, I'm going there. So as Ben Lyons texted me this morning, he goes, Leo snubbed, probably doesn't care. I'm like, yeah, I don't think he wants to walk the red carpet. I don't think he cares about these things. He's like, whatever. Great. I didn't get nominated. But the number one biggest snub, and this was offensive. Like, I, I literally put my, my hand in my head. Because as the nominations come out, it's an alphabetical order. They don't ever say the name, right? They just say, poor things. And you go, okay. And, then I, and I looked, and I go, that can't be right. And I knew it was right. And I was so upset. Best adapted screenplay. No nomination for Marty and Eric Roth. And I said, this is his best pathway to an Oscar because no one's going to win director. And Killers of Flower Moon really only really has a good chance right now at Lily for actress. Maybe Robbie Robertson, I hope, for score. But I said, Marty will get screenplay. They'll say, you know what? He's a director who's crafted a lot of great stories. Eric Roth, who's won an Oscar. He worked on Munich. He worked on Forrest Gump. He, again, as I said in the pot, he said, no, Marty's got to get nominated for screenplay. Like, he is critical to this film. And I said, that's what they'll do. They like to split the vote. No one gets director. Marty gets screenplay. But he doesn't even get nominated for best adapted screenplay. Absolute killer. And who is to blame? As we discussed just last week with Ben Lyons, when he said to me, it's Barbie. It's Barbie's fault. If Barbie was nominated for best original screenplay, which I believe to be the case, we'd be fine. But your original screenplay nominees are Anatomy of Fall, the holdovers. We had Dave Hemmingsing on the pod, but he might win, by the way, because we have another we have another Oscar winner here in Cinefile. I think he's got a good chance of winning. Maestro, May, December, 
and past lives. Very happy for past lives, by the way, getting nominated for screenplay. Now, adapted screenplay, what do you take out? American Fiction, which I love. Thrilled to see Court Jefferson nominated for an Oscar. Oppenheimer, great script by Nolan. Horror Things, pretty good script. Zone of Interest, again, that's the one I'm not as enamored of as I would not have Zone of Interest nominated for adapted screenplay. I would have had Marty and Eric Roth for Killers of the Fire Moon. And then you get Barbie. So Chris Connolly does a great job on Good Morning America. They asked him immediately for his reaction. The first thing he said, he goes, I'm pretty surprised Martin Scorsese did not get nominated for adapted screenplay, Eric Roth, because that, that one felt like a cinch and they got pushed out because apparently Barbie may have hurt them. So I'm mad at a plastic doll today. I give it to Chris Cody. What do you think? Ben says it should be adapted screenplay. It's based on material previously existing. I say, no, no. Adapted screenplay to me is an article, a play, a TV movie, a short story. What do you think? Is Barbie an original screenplay or adapted? I see both sides of this, but I kind of, if you make me choose, I think I'm on Ben's side. Like, I mm -hmm. think, like, it's, these, these are characters. Like, I know that they put, like, they gave these characters more life, but all these things right. existed. It was existing material, I just say. So that's once a killer. Listen, I'm going to finish this podcast. I got my head held up high because Marty's director, Giamatti nominated, De Niro, Jeffrey Wright, Sterling K. Brown, Mark Ruffle. I have a lot of things to be happy about. You got me invested in Giamatti now. Like, I have not, I can't remember <laughs> yeah. the last time I've, like, been, like, just, usually I don't yeah. really have a dog in this fight. Like, I am, I, I'm with you. I love Giamatti. Yeah. He needs yeah. to get this Oscar. What can we and, do? And, Is the voting already happened? How does this work? Like, has the voting already happened? No, no, for no. Winter? The other nomination, now the voting begins. So the next okay. six weeks is a sprint. Yeah. And I don't think we can announce just yet. But let's just put it this way. The last couple of years with Cinephile, I've been in my basement tweeting away, and then Chris and I do an immediate Oscars reaction. Ben Lyons joined a couple of years ago. But this year, bigger things right, planned. Bigger work, bigger things here. And we'll just leave it at that. All right. Um, the good news also, by the way, for all the chiding I give Cody, you're actually pretty up on the Oscars. You've seen Barbie. You've seen Oppenheimer. You've seen Killers of Flower Moon. I mean, if you watch the holdovers, that's on Peacock. You'll knock out Giamatti. You're going to love gotta it. I'll see that. Right I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to watch that this you're weekend. I'll tell you right now, you're going to love it. I, I've had friends now text me because it's on Peacock. That movie's hilarious. He's like, I also need to see it? American Splendor. Just like researching it a little bit oh. for you made me interested in that. I got to go. I got. I, I don't feel like I've, I think I've just scratched the surface of my Giamatti. I don't think I've seen nearly <laughs> enough Giamatti. That's what I would love. God, that would be the greatest compliment you could ever pay me. Like people ask you years from now, like your dad's like, what was it like working with that? And I go, honestly, he really made me love Paul Giamatti more. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like I, like I like Martin Scorsese. He likes him. Okay, De Niro, but you're like, I know those guys are good, but like, but like I already liked Giamatti and I didn't like push me to like, no, no, dude, he's awesome. Yeah. He's one of our great American actors. I'm like, all right, I'm mm -hmm. in. He is one of our greatest actors. Love it. The guy's the best. Let's do some other stuff. And right he looks now. like us. But this is the best part of it. If When I saw him, I go, he's my height. He's not skinny. He's not, you know, he's balding. Like, this is this is what I'm talking about. This is what a movie star should be. It doesn't have to be Paul Newman. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, Brian Gosling. Paul Giamatti could be a freaking movie star, man. It's the best. I love him. Uh, let's do Fargo real quick. And then a little bit of American Splendor. Then we're going to get to our special guest. Uh, Fargo's great, man. I, I, the movie is one of my all-time favorite movies. Favorite of Ryan Rosillo's as well. The only time Rosillo's ever been on Cinephile. I had him on because I want to talk about Fargo, and he loves it as much as I do. Uh, the show itself is interesting. So you're adapting a movie. And at first, I was very skeptical. The first season was awesome, though. Billy Bob Thornton, one of my favorite actors. He's in my top 10. He was fantastic playing the Stone Cold Killer. Then they kind of went up and down. I, I appreciate Chris Rock trying a dramatic role, but I didn't think that season of Fargo was particularly strong not chris's fault i just didn't think the stories were as strong but this was a, a pretty strong season and um this season five features among others john ham which i appreciate people listening to the pod because i somebody looked at my instrument goes where's your john ham picture because I, I mentioned previously on the pod i think with ben and you last week you know of all the people he was he was the least enamored of me i would john ham was a nice guy he was polite but he wasn't thrilled to talk to me will ferrell was friendly <laughs> giamatti was friendly bill Hader was friendly john ham was just like nodding politely I'm like okay yeah cardinals blues Got it. Can I get a picture? Sure. Scott Rogowski. Got it. But <laughs> having said that, I'm not I still think he's a great actor. Still very handsome. My wife's happy we got a picture with him. And he's really awesome on the show. He plays a, a dude who's not to be trifled with. I don't want to just say he's a Trumper, but he's definitely an isolationist and he's a no holds barred kind of sheriff. But it's quirky because it's Fargo. Fargo takes crime stories, but then does them a little bit in a strange fashion. And I'll tell you exactly how. One of the first scenes of John Hamm. And it's in the snow. Obviously, it's Fargo. It's cold. He's in a hot tub and the camera reveals he has nipple rings and he has to keep an entire monologue talking. I don't know if he did it for the role. Perhaps they're just, you know, uh, I was going to say clip on clip on nippons is what John Hammond to do for the role. But he's literally having this conversation. He's got the big cowboy hat on. Well, that's what I'm going to tell you when it comes to law around here. And the guy's got nipple rings. I'm like, you know what? John Hammond's a pretty good actor. The fact he delivered this monologue for five years. <laughs> Among those issues, the fact he's a stone cold man of the law. Now, 
Juno Temple, who's in the movie, one of the few people I didn't talk to the Critics' Choice Awards, but Ben Lines did. She was walking by. Ben knows Juno. He starts talking to her for a second, blah, blah, blah. She's awesome in the show. And she plays one of these women who is not to be underestimated. I mean, she's like, you know, five, 205 pounds, an absolute spitfire. She's really wonderful in the show as well. But what they do with Fargo is, you know, they use elements of the movie and then adapt it into the show. So one of the villains in the show, I don't have his name off the top of my head, but he's he's clearly playing like Anton Chigurh. Like he's channeling Javier Bardem from No Country for Old Men. And he's just strange and weird. And there's, I don't even know how to describe it. There's this insane flashback they did in the show to like 1500 years ago. I, I He's like a Viking. And I'm like, oh my God, like Fargo, as far as television shows go, they take chances and they take shots. And uh, I found the season five to be particularly rewarding. I don't know if there's gonna be any more seasons of it. Now, say this. You know, people always talk about TV being so good. Emmy Awards are done now. Movies made a comeback, man. This was a strong year. Nolan, Scorsese, Giamatti, Barbie. Like, these are big-time movies. Big shows. Succession's done now. Ted Lasso, done. Like, what, what's what's the big TV show people are watching now? The so Bear? Like, Fargo, but I'm with bear. you. I'm kind of with you, though. It's Like, everyone's like, oh, TV's never been better. Movies suck. Now I'm like, no, no, movies are back. Like, all, all the best movies came out, and the TV's... Like, you're right. The Bear? Okay, sure. I haven't seen it. Jeremy Allen White... You know, he's having a smoke. Seems like a nice guy. Okay. Beef. And no, no, no one's walking up the street. Hey, have you seen beef yet? I'm like, no, like the big one. I'm telling you, Succession and Lasso being done. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I like that show's done. And Fargo season five. This could be it as well. So as far as this golden era of TV, I'm curious what HBO cooks up next. Everyone's rewatching The Sopranos right now. That's also like, true. A lot of people I talk to are like, yeah, I'm just on season three of The Sopranos. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> good show. Good show. Thank you for mentioning. 25th anniversary came out. It was earlier this month, actually. Laura Brandt, our booker, was like, do you want to have Alan Seppenwall on, who's a great guy. He wrote a book called The Sopranos Sessions. Like, honestly, I've talked so much about The Sopranos. Prior to me and Chris working together, it was me and Joe at Cadence. I literally did all 86 episodes. Like, I would do like an episode recap on The Sopranos. So it's my favorite show, and I support all those rewatching it. But I feel like I've done so much here on Cinefall for the longtime listeners, like Brett Baker and David Pete. They're like, oh, God, here goes that in again with Sopranos. So, I fully support a rewatch. And if you want to go back and listen to my show from 100 episodes ago, I talked about The Sopranos so many other times. All right, here's some blurbs here. Meantime from Fargo. Uh, Alan Sepinwall, speaking of, a Rolling Stone. It is, in other words, a new collection of performers playing Noah Hawley's greatest hits as Fargo, the TV show, leans into what it's always done best. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving the people what they want. Ben Travers of IndieWire. Fargo season five is more concentrated than years past, but its individualized attentions not only make for a lean and mean dark comic thriller, they also befit a story about the dangers of walling yourself off from the world. Allison Herman of Variety. Fargo is a testament to the value of creativity within constraints, reworking a 27-year-old movie into a living text. It's an experiment that works better when it doesn't explicitly argue for its own continued relevance. And lastly, Sam Adams of Slate. Holly is an avid Cones disciple, but he's a literalist. Repeating the Fargo movies, this is a true story opening at the beginning of every season five episode as if it were a statement of purpose rather than a gag. We'll get to our special guest in just a second, Charles Stone III. But speaking of directors, I do have to mention RIP to the great Norman Jewison, Canadian legend. I probably shouldn't share this, but I will anyways. Dave Rutherford, my old boss, he's one of the greats of all time. Without him, I, I wouldn't have the career I've had. Dave was the news director at the score television network what he's known for is when somebody dies he always texts me what a break for whatever so i'll give you the context of this it first began apparently when clemente passed away one of my all-time favorites shout out to john ortiz his son's name is clemente he texted well he didn't text at that time he was telling me he said what a break for richie zisk because richie zisk was the pirate's fourth outfielder so whenever somebody dies to this day dave rather like text me you know I like I, 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 he's a great guy so he, and the, the game is you have to then guess what it is so he like um, when Alex Trebek dies, he texted, what a break for Pat Sajak. So I have to guess, okay, who died? I'm like, oh, he's making an Alex Trebek. So the other day he texted me, he goes, what a break for Martin Scorsese. And I was like, okay, which director just died? So then sometimes I guess, sometimes I just get bored. I'm busy. I'm like, Dave, who died? He's like, Norman Jewison. I go, oh my God, Norman Jewison, an all-time legend, Canadian legend. Norman Jewison directed In the Heat of the Night, hometown of Toronto. He's easily the greatest Canadian director of all time. In the Heat of the Night, Sidney Poitier, incredible film. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Rod Steiger, The Hurricane, Denzel Washington, Norman Jewison directed it. And famously, he was going to direct Malcolm X until Spike Lee played the race car and goes, hey, you can't have a brother not directing Malcolm X. And Norman Jewison, I remember, was very offended at the time. I was like, listen, I'm a white Canadian liberal. I will do this film justice. And Spike's like, no, nope, got to have a brother doing it. Bam. Spike directed Malcolm X, which is a power move by Spike. Anyways, Jewison, uh, a wonderful director. I mean, I think he was 93, so I had a great run. I mentioned those films, which I appreciate, but even my buddy Alpha Hill, when he saw Moonstruck as a kid, I mean, 
I mean, that's a film you could watch again. Nicolas Cage, Cher won an Academy Award for it. So RIP to Norman Jewison, a wonderful Canadian icon and a great director. Respect due to him. Let's do a little American Splendor, shall we? This is the movie to me, like, you know, last week Chris mentioned pig vomit, and uh, it is true. Private Parts put him on the map. But he does pig vomit. He has one scene in My Best Friend's Wedding with Julia Roberts. He's got that great scene in Donnie Brasco with Johnny Depp. I'm speaking of Giamatti, obviously. He's in uh, Big Fat Liar. I think that's 2002. So, like, he was he was in movies. But American Splendor, I remember, that was the moment I go, this guy's legit. Like, this guy's a great actor. And he has said now in all these interviews and podcasts that I've listened to, that was a very important movie because he said, I was pushing hard for the role. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to be an animator. He goes, like, I thought that'd be a great job. And he goes, I knew who Harvey Picar was. So I really pushed hard for the role and I was able to get it. I think the film had like a $2 million budget, maybe made $8 million. Sundance Film Festival is currently going on now in Utah. I've been there once. Me and Ben went years ago. It's a really cool time, especially if you like the snow. You check out a bunch of indie movies, documentaries, then go skiing. Um, but I remember when American Splendor came out, they're like, dude, this movie's awesome. It's very original. It's very unique. Here's the story. An original mix of fiction and reality illuminates the life of comic book hero everyman Harvey P. Carp. It's uh, directed by Sherry Springer Bergman and Robert Pulcini, co-written by uh, Sherry Springer Bergman as well with Harvey P. Carp. So they had actually made their names as documentarians. And what's so cool about the movie is the first scene, those kids are going trick-or-treating. And they go, what are you dressed as? What are you dressed as? And they look at this kid and he goes, well, I'm myself. He's like, well, I'm Harvey P. Carp. She goes, well, you can't do that. He's like, well, screw this. That's the first scene of the movie. He starts walking down the street, there's great jazz music playing. And then you see the real-life Harvey P. Carp. And he goes, and they, they cut to show Giamatti walking on. She goes, and it's Harvey Picar's voiceover saying, so here's this guy playing me in this movie. I don't know if he looks like me, but he's me. I'm just a schlub in the streets of Cleveland. And then it cuts to a shot of Picar in a recording studio, as I am right now with the microphone, a white background. He goes, is that good? Okay. You guys want me to do another take? They go, oh, no, it should be fine, Harvey. He's like, okay. He drinks something. He's like, all right. I hope this is going to be a good movie. We'll find out. And then it cuts to Giamatti playing Picar. So you have this really... Now they call it meta, M-E-T-A, right? This meta fiction. Like it's it's Harvey Picar commenting on his life story and Giamatti playing him. In fact, in one scene, Giamatti does the scene. So you're watching the film and then it cuts to a shot again of Harvey Picar watching Paul Giamatti doing the scene. Giamatti walks by as if he's talking to the director, talking to the cast. So I remember at the time thinking this is a pretty original film and a very unique way to tell the story. And Giamatti's lights out. I mean, it's an incredible performance because Harvey Picar is not a warm and cuddly man. I mean, he is the the epitome of curmudgeon and misanthropic. You know, just hates people, miserable. He's a file clerk, but he does these cartoons. He can't draw particularly well, but he's got a unique sense of style. And he shows it to his buddy, R. Crumb. Crumb, my favorite documentary of all time. And he says, you know what? Can I take this home and illustrate these for you? And he's like, oh my God, man, that'd be amazing. Oh my God. I can't do the Giamatti slash Picar voice, but it's kind of like, ah, it's kind of like raspy. Like, oh my God, man, that'd be awesome. So he starts drawing his cartoons, and it's cartoons for the working class. It's about a guy in Cleveland who's pissed and miserable, and, and he becomes a star. So it's going on Letterman, you know, Letterman at that time, Counterculture, 1230 a.m. Here's Harvey Picar, and he becomes, I wouldn't say a star. As he says at one point, he goes, yeah, you know, my cartoons are selling, but I'm still working as a file clerk in Cleveland. I'm not rich here, Letterman. You don't pay me much money, blah, blah, blah. But the relationship with Dave is really good. One of the few weaknesses of the movie is, he had a falling out with Letterman very famously and late night with David Letterman back in 03 would not release to the filmmakers the footage of when Harvey Picar got pissed at Dave and they got into a fight. So in the movie, they see Giamatti backstage talking, I'm going to go on, and then they show Picar when he was in Letterman and then they'll see Giamatti. But because they couldn't get the footage of when he got pissed at him, you end up having this, and it looks like, it's one of those movies where I'm like, they didn't have much of a budget. There's nothing else they could do. They shoot it with a guy playing Letterman, but it's backlit. So you clearly tell it's not Dave. And it's Giamatti doing what Picard did. And get, ah, oh, you're a real tough guy, Dave. Yeah, I'm getting mad. But I'm like, it was one of those that I'm like, I, I maybe wouldn't have even included it. I would have just had like headlines saying, Picard follow up with Letterman. Because when you try to recreate something and you're not able to do a thousand percent, to me, it wasn't as strong. That's one of the few quibbles I have of the movie. Uh, the rest of the cast is fantastic. You know, the, the whole Hope Davis is really good playing the love interest. Um, even the supporting cast, who's the guy? J Jonah Friedlander. He's one of those comedians that definitely uh, Cody would know. He's in the movie playing. His character is just so bizarre. And at one point, you see the guy he's playing. He shows up. He's got like the, you know, the nerd glasses, the crazy voice, you know, gut sticking out. I'm like, it was, it's a really interesting mix of fiction and reality. And ultimately, the story, it's a charming love story, but a guy who, who nobody loves, right? He's one of these losers that you see every single day. And yet somehow, some way, 
he's able to survive and be successful. And like, it's almost like a tribute to life. Like I found it life affirming. This guy is not a friendly guy. He's not a cuddly guy. And yet he's successful in his own right. And one day he just scraps through life. It's a scrappy performance. It's a scrappy movie. And it really announced Paul Giamatti as a legit lead actor. Nick Shager of Slant Magazine, an act of unabashed postmodern. That's a good word for it. Postmodern self-commentary applied to deliberately blur the distinction between the authentic Harvey Picar and actor Paul Giamatti's faithful recreation. James Bertinelli, uh, I wish once more the comic book inspired movies were like this. It's right. The next thing someone says, well, you don't like comic book movies? I'm like, no, I know. I just don't like Marvel movies. I like American Splendor. That's a comic book movie that I loved. And Jonathan Rosenbaum was Chicago Reader. We're constantly kept on our toes regarding issues of representation, while Picard's sour but indefatigable working class skepticism carries us along. Good review and good use of indefatigable. Go watch American Splendor. I have the DVD. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere, but go watch it. If not, Go buy a DVD player like me and go watch it. Fargo Season 5 is available on FX. I'll give that uh, three and a half Maple Leafs as well. And of course, four Maple Leafs for American Splendor. Let's get to our special guest. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. The Underdogs is the new film available this Friday on Amazon Prime. I encourage all of you to check it out. Snoop Dogg coaching a bunch of football players. It's a lot of fun. It's really funny. It earns its R, which is my way of saying I enjoy it. It's profanely funny. And its director, Charles Stone III, joins us right now, who's a terrific director. He's done a lot of great things. Great to see you, man. Congratulations on making a terrific movie. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience to do, too. Uh, I want to start backwards because having seen the film, and I don't want to blow up for anybody, but the end crawl explains what Snoop Dogg has done uh, for youth football, which is yeah. extraordinary. I, I had no idea how passionate he was about this, Charles, and how it's impacted so many different levels of football, college players and some even in the NFL as well. So this is a real passion project for Snoop, right? Yeah, no. And I, and like you, I didn't I didn't know the depth of the of the passion uh or the resume and that like over 20 players have gone on to the nfl a couple were playing our play for um the packers you know unfortunately they lost as well as texas so it's just incredible um and like you said you know i think it's about 20 plus years also of of doing the syfl it just added to it it it, it also just connects it shows in i think snoop's performance of understanding the character, but also his love for that culture and that to come across being very realistic. Yeah, I'm sure as, listen, a rapper, he's top of the chain. As a businessman, of course, he's well-claimed. But I'm curious about his style as an actor. I think the first thought would be, oh, Snoop's not much of an actor. And credit to his performance, so much of it feels lived in and ad-libbed and casual. But how was he take after take as somebody, you're in the director's chair trying to mold a performance out of him. How was he? Well, Snoop was great. He look, he he understood the character. He understood and he also like a lot of actors do, which is he drew from real life experiences of his own to uh to help mold his character and just the understanding of what that character is going through, what 2Js is going through. Um he personally I think technique-wise, he was really present uh for the role. He was open uh, to be directed uh, and to and to go to sometimes uncomfortable places or, or out of his comfort zone in order to find certain emotions and um, 
it's just you you couldn't ask for anything better than that is to have an actor who just is really present for the process and is open you know to be directed and and, and to explore and he did all of that and 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 the icing on the cake was that he was so good with the kids he's a big kid himself and frankly that's those his character as well as uh Mike Epps character uh Kareem they're both like man man childs you know what i mean they're both big kids but he was Snoop was so good with the kids and and created a uh, a uh, one heck of a bond that i think also just makes it very comfortable for the child actors to do their thing and really show their colors so one of the funniest scenes of the underdogs is about 20 minutes in just as you're describing when he first meets the kids and they start to recognize him. He's like, "Yeah, that's what I'm talking about two J's, Jennings." Yeah, they go, "Yeah, you're the guy that used a fake penis to cheat on his drug test." And yeah. the next kid goes, "Yeah, you're the one who slept with an undercover cop before the playoff game." He's like, "Hey, hey, come on, man! Like that—that that to me, that kind of set the tone, right? Because you've got this bad news bears vibe going, but yes. these kids are gonna get as good as they get it." Talk to me about that scene specifically, which felt really funny. Um, one of the things that was important for both Snoop and I uh, was that the kids feel real. to be as real as possible and be grounded in in the culture in some form or fashion and what we did is once i narrowed down the 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 actors that i really liked he then would sit down with them and and do a a sort of a callback we they would do a scene together and for him it was important that one they the kids not appear to be starstruck or or to be nervous uh you know acting opposite Snoop and just be able to to bandy about and and all the kids that are in the movie they are all very comfortable and had no fear of of Snoop or didn't feel intimidated or starstruck and especially Jonagan Booth who plays Trey who's mm. fantastic all the kids are Jonagan just is sort of like a diamond in the rough and 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 you could you can really feel that and he he could just roll with the punches with Snoop and it was great so it became quite clear that um there was going to be a comfort level so when we get to those moments like the one you're talking about uh where they're like cussing back and forth at each other it just flowed it flowed really well and there was a little bit of we allowed them to improvise a little bit as well um so we got the best of both worlds in that in that situation a uh, whole cast is terrific talking about a couple of guys I'm a big fans of Cal Penn who I've had on the podcast oh, before yeah. when he wrote a book he's hilarious his first scene first scene already grabs me you know, he's on the treadmill he's got the odds <laughs> in you know, he's playing Snoop's yeah. agent already funny and Snoop's got a great Harold and Kumar joke it feels like an ad lib I'm not sure if it is and also uh George Lopez so as soon as I see him I mean he was great in the Blue Beetle he's always a welcome comedic presence talk to me about Cal and George and what they brought to the table well i mean Cal Cal just so fit the role well like he really handled uh sort of that type of that stereotype of that type of you know that kind of agent um and we also we wanted somebody wanted like an agent of color as well that was important to Snoop and uh and myself as well and you know th- yeah the Harold and Kumar uh moment I'm thinking it's either either the writers did that or it might have been Snoop I think the writers had it in there and uh but we it was we had a couple different options and again the way it rolls off of Snoop's tongue it's it it's so funny um you know what I mean and there's been enough distance bet- with with Cal and that character that it was yeah. really funny you know wink wink um in terms of George you know when I read the script when I first read the script George came to mind for coach Feist as much as is he's one of my favorite comedians to stand up and he's got he's got this combination of charm wit and edge and um i knew that the coach feist had to have a similar feel of first of all he's the yoda of the of the of the movie right he's the one who uses sort of jedi mind tricks <laughs> to get you know two j's to to see what's really going on here and and see his own selfishness um and it's i i think for we were doing a test screenings i think the audience was a little caught off guard because they expected you know george to just be like raucous from the jump and it was never to be that and it's only towards the end of the movie where he's cheering on the kids in the big game that george gets to let that dimension of himself really let loose in terms of being really funny but i i'm happy for him because he did such a great job of playing a more grounded sort of character that is funny but in a, in a way that is not 
just in terms of his great stand-up. The best compliment I could pay you, Charles, the director, was I just love the pacing. That from the first shot, boom, you're into it, right? Here's the pr- backstory, whatever prologue you want to call it. Now we go present day, boom, boom, boom. 90 minutes, efficient, entertaining. I said, this is going to appeal to all audiences. I'm not against long movies. If it's a great film, Killers of the Fire Moon, no problem. 320, yes. 330, I got you. <laughs> but I appreciate a good, lean, mean movie. How important was the pacing for a movie like this? Well, there's a... Pacing's always good. I mean, very important. I mean, even in the in the sense of uh, with movies that are sort of have a slower burn, so to speak. But um, as long as you are going along for the ride, that you're 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 hooked in. If the characters are strong, then it could be slow or fast. Is people people timelessness? Time will fall away if if you're invested in the characters, right? That's just the, to me the golden rule. For us, this movie. I don't know. It, 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 the, 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 the pacing needed to, um, to move just because it's, it's, it's kind of a high octane, you know, energy level journey that this character takes because he's so brash and so full of himself. And, and we also, look, we also wanted to get to hit him encountering the kids as soon as possible. Cause we knew that's when the fireworks were going to happen. Um, and his attitude, the beginning, it's, it's about his attitude. His attitude is a highlights reel and highlights move <laughs> like this. It's not watching yeah. a whole game, right? It's, it's, it's all the good parts. So we go through that and he's boasting and he's on his soapbox. So it all moves at a great clip. And then it kind of slows for a moment where we see where he is at his, at his life right now. And this older guy in a big ass mansion, you know, <laughs> with, no, with not much furniture and just boatloads of cereal, you know, of him on the Wheaties box. So, you know, and then just his urgency to, to become, to try to reinvent himself and, you know, go see the agent. And, and then, and, and then once he makes that moment of leaving the agency, it's when the shit hits the fan and then we're off to the races. So the underdogs is fantastic. I encourage everyone to go check it out on Amazon prime available this Friday, January 26th. While I have you, Charles, we'd love to dive into some of the rest of your career, of course, the very famous Was Up commercials, which are still hysterical, still trend-setting. I don't <laughs> know if you still shoot commercials, but how do you manage expectations? I'm sure the thought process is whoever's hiring you, we're going to make this thing go viral. How do you manage that between the craft of just making something memorable but also popular? Well, you know what? That's a great question for my ego as well <laughs> as for my heart or and anyone in this position, that kind of a question, because – for me, it's for the ego. It's like the ego would say it's fucking great. It's awesome. You know what I mean? It's, it's all about like, you know, that achieving that, that level of, of adulation and praise and awards and attention and exposure. Um, but what I have to do as a filmmaker is put the ego to the side and just focus on trusting the intent of what it is I'm doing, right? The story, what is, what is at the heart? of the story. What is at the heart of the what's up, you know, the short film that I did that became the campaign because four guys screaming what's up into a phone, you know, that's, that could be borderline, you know, minstrel, you know, and (laughs) so I have to be careful about that. So it's like, what, what is it about those four guys that makes them screaming into the phone funny or even profound and that's just guys and it's not just guys women do this too you friends do this where they i call it holding hands through the phone where you're just like on the phone you're not really talking to the person you're both watching television almost like together so people really click with that and then the what's up part just is the icing on the cake so in terms of this uh, uh underdog same thing it's like what is understanding what it is I'm making and and staying focused on that and just trust that the rest will follow, you know, that the that it will get the exposure it needs to it deserves. Uh, it will get the awards that it deserves. In, any in anything that we all do as as artists, as whatever we do, it's about focusing in on the process. Cause don't get me wrong, I I, I dream about my Oscar speech all the time, but I have <laughs> only devote a small amount of time to that and really devote the energy towards whatever it is that I'm creating. And if it gets the Oscar, great. If it, if it, yeah. if it kills in the box office, great. Yeah, we want that. And it's good business for me because then it has, it lets the studios know, okay, Charles is a viable asset. He gets butts in the seats. Let's give him more money to do more projects. 
So if it bombs, that that could be that could be detrimental to me paying the rent, so to speak. But again, yeah. I just kind of focus on whatever the project is and the heart of that and trust that everything else will hopefully follow. The best comment I could pay you about Mr. 3000 is my sister-in-law cried at the end of it. So she was particularly moved by this story. And as a lifelong baseball fan, of course, I really enjoyed it. Bernie Mac, uh, you know, RIP. We yeah. all loved him as an actor. Of course, he was such a special talent. What was he like to work with on that film specifically? <laughs> it's so funny when people ask me that. You know, and I think uh, I think Bernie would laugh too because um, he and I had a, had a somewhat contentious <laughs> A relationship when we were shooting. <laughs> um, but, you know, through it all, you know, uh, blessings to him, especially is like, you know, we 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 made it happen. Like we 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 came together. And I remember him saying after him seeing it for the first time, like, you know, he says, I think we made a really good movie and I think you did a really great job. And I was like, thank you, you as well. So it was good. And look, regardless of that, like as a professional, I could see the charm. I, I you know, he's just charming and he has this larger than life energy. So I tried to, I tried to hold on to the intent of what, of who the character is or was and who he is and who he was and know that that combination was magical. And it was, it, it yeah. was, I think a lot of people were caught off guard because it is a coming of age story about a middle-aged guy, which yeah. could sound like, you know, boring, but that's the thing that was important to me, that it'd be more like Bull Durham as opposed to uh, Major League. And the interesting thing is that Jonathan Glickman, who was one of the producers on on this, on Underdogs, he was uh, the producer on Mr. 2000. He's the one who called me and said, I got this project I've been working with Snoop on and Kenya Barris, um, and I want to tell you all about it. And, you know, it's very similar to Mr. 2002 on top of that, but but yeah, for sure. It, it, it was it was great. It was great working with him. And I, I, as a filmmaker, I just I, I, I love the moments that are really important to me are the moments where the epiphany happens or the realization for the for the the flawed hero, so to speak, where he or she sees what they were doing wrong or they see the magic of of their selflessness when they reach that moment. So when Bernie Mac's character, Stan Ross, looks at everyone cheering and he's crying and he takes the ball that he, you know, that hit that would put him quote unquote in the history books. He throws it away. That gives me goosebumps. Like I, again, that like in, in, in this movie in, in, in uh, underdogs, when two J's sees the kids grieving, but sees them comfort each other. That's the victory. That that's the moment. That's the moment that that's the gift that was given to him because he embraced them as family, and that's the win. So those are the moments that, you know what it is? Th those are the North Star moments for me as a filmmaker that I keep my eye on that North Star as I'm going through the craziness that it is to make a movie and the struggles and challenges. As long as I keep my eye on that, then I know I'll be good. I love the passion. A couple more for you. Let's get out of here. Peyton Fultz shot my hometown of Toronto. So clearly you've got experience with musical stars, Cameron, Snoop. What was that experience yeah. like? Um, wow, dude. That's, um, you know, the, the Cameron thing happened really because the producer, Damon Dash, when we were casting and he said, he said to me, look, of the three guys, you know, the three main characters, uh, Ace, Rich, and uh, or rather Ace, Mitch, and 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 Rico, that one of them had to be from Harlem. Like he said, I just I just want to make sure that despite having these really good actors in Mackay and and Wood, somebody I want someone to like be Harlem. And I was like, I'm I was down with that, but I was like, we got to make sure that I said, well, bring them in. Like, who who do you want me to look at? You know, and we looked, he brought in like every MC that he could think of and that he worked, that he and Jay-Z were working with at the time. Beanie Siegel, a whole bunch of cats showed up and they were all dope in their own right. But Cameron had, he had that thing that I thought, okay, he's the character. I could see that. And and in talking to him and stuff, it felt like it, it, it could totally work. And he was great. I mean, he, you know, he he basically is the, the third act. So, yeah. um so yeah, that 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 worked out very well. Again, you know, for me as a director, I love working with cats who you know graduated from Juilliard. You know, have like insane theatrical academic backgrounds and training. But 
I'm also open to cats who have life training, period. You know, mm-hmm. as long as they, I, and that's, that, that will be my role is to help them access what I believe for them to already have. What Bernie Mac had, seeing his stand-up, I always knew he's got such great edge, but also such great sort of depth of pathos of like understanding mm-hmm. his family upbringing and life that he'll be able to draw into that. And Snoop, same thing. I mean, Snoop's been a superstar. He knows what it's like to be at the very top. He's probably he knows what it's like to for the ego to get out of get bent out of shape at times. I'm sure he knows he's aware of all that stuff and he loves sports. So yeah. he will be able to access that. Cameron grew up in Harlem. He knew the cats that the movie was originally based on. And he told me, because he was he was definitely like Joe Pesci. He was a sociopath like <laughs> Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. But he knew a cat that he grew up with that was that. And he was he was tailoring his version of of Rico from that person. And it was palpable. I mean, it was it was pretty incredible. Speaking of incredible, Drumline was the movie, obviously very important within black culture. Yeah. And for Nick Cannon, his breakout. Did you yeah. ever expect, Charles, Nick Cannon would be an entity unto himself? And this guy is a workaholic <laughs> who's built his entire brand. It all begins with Drumline 20 years ago. Well, first of all, Nick, it was between him, I've got the other cat's name, actor, he was in the he was in the in the the final two and the thing about nick is that he had this boyish combination of boyishness and and sort of edge and and it and it was super charming but also felt like he he could he had he could he had a a sense of of edginess to him so that worked out really well um again him too really open to be directed and and wanting to explore the character uh and very humble in the process what i discovered in the process though is the hard working thing meaning even as, as hard as he was working on the role at the same time he was constantly in in the studio doing music you know off hours like he just and he was doing comedy shows and you know, he at an early age, he developed a really strong, a real strong work ethic in general. And he used to, I think, tour when he was really young doing stand up. And so now he's like a mogul of his in his own right, uh, which is great. But I, I, I witnessed it while we were shooting. It was like off hours. It was like, where's Nick? He's like, oh, he's in the studio producing so and so or he's putting together this show he's trying to do. And I was just like, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to think about what a great career Charles Stone III make sure you check out The Underdogs available on Amazon Prime this Friday January 26th congrats on a terrific career Charles and, and thanks for all the wonderful stories and for your time man I really appreciate it I uh, appreciate you thank you for the questions I look forward to see you on the next one Thanks once again to Charles Stone, man. Good dude. Make sure you check out The Underdogs, available on Amazon Prime. Snoop Dogg is an actor. Snoop Line showing off his skills. Huge football guy. Uh, definitely check it out. I enjoyed watching the way. I'm glad they sent me the screener, as I mentioned in the interview. Good supporting cast there with Cal Penn, former Cinephile guest and former author, and of course, George Lopez. That does it for Cinephile Oscar nomination special. Lots more content coming down the pike. Thank you, as always, to the support. Thank you to Chris Cody and the Metal Arc team. As always, go to Apple Podcasts, just subscribe, rate, and review, and I'll see you at the movies. Movies.